the UK Food Shows podcast in association with William Reed Business Media. Welcome to the UK Food Shows podcast, this time centering on the ingredients show. I'm Nick Clancy. And I'm Neil Branson. Coming up. And then the ingredient show really fills in a blank because it's looking um, further down the chain. And that's becoming more and more important because transparency is obviously such a key trend. We caught up with Katie Askew, editor at Food Navigator, who's going to whet our appetite about the show content. It's a necessary uh, plant uh, in our lives and society, and finally we're able to do it legally. And all the way from Portland, Oregon, Neil caught up with Professor Jay Noller to talk all things hemp and how to enliven your inner maestro. Feeding the planet, sustainability, how we're going to use technology to go forward is a really, really important message to get out there. I spoke to Tony Hunter, a food futurist from Future Cubed. He spoke about why our approach to proteins has to change in order to feed a growing population. Now, gut health is really revolutionising essentially what it means to be human. And our thought for the week comes from gut health doctor Megan Rossi. Probiotics, prebiotics, microbiome, gut health, sports nutrition, active nutrition, maternal and infant nutrition, personalised nutrition, medical nutrition, healthy ageing, digital and wearable technologies, botanicals. Neil, I know you're not feeling very well at the moment. Do you think you could benefit from a visit to the Ingredients Show? 100%. Anything that can cure the common cold would be wonderful. So uh, any visitors thinking about attending the show would do well to listen to our next interviewee. Katie Askew, thanks so much for joining me. No problem. I want to get your take really on the Ingredients Show. Um, this is the third year of the Ingredients Show. What in your mind really sets this show apart? Well, um, the Ingredients Show is very interesting because it's part of William Reed's um, broader capabilities across the supply chain. So obviously you have things like Foodex looking at the manufacturing side, Farm Shop and Deli very much looking at the retail and production side, and then the ingredient show really fills in a blank because it's looking um, further down the chain. And that's becoming more and more important because transparency is obviously such a key trend for um, for the consumers and the industry as a whole. So it's a really interesting aspect of the show. Um, what's going to set this year apart is um, the growth that it's seen. So um, um, I've got some stats here. Fantastic. From um, so from 2018 through to now, it's seen a 24% growth in um, in stands. So it's increased by a quarter, which is pretty significant in quite a short space of time. Obviously, it's still a young show, but it's it's an exciting area, and I think it's going to bring a lot of insight and innovation into the space. Absolutely, you mentioned insight and innovation, and I would I would argue that one of the things that that, that really is one of the key selling points of the ingredient show is it's very content rich would you agree with that oh yeah the education lab is a really exciting um development it's something that we have run across the three years but it just keeps getting better and better um there are some there is some it brings a lot of uh, a lot of depth to the content um and it's it unpicks some really important questions for the sector and, and yeah i think it's interesting interesting Stuff. I would say that, though. I'm, I'm putting it together. Of so. course. Well, no, no, well, quite. I wanted to ask you about some personal highlights. I just, having looked at the, the lineup thus far, it, it's, there's some real eminent kind of names, some in, innovators, some real innovative thinking. I'm thinking of people like Jane Noller, talking about kind of unlocking your inner maestro, the endocannabinoid system. 
we're going to have a food futurologist there who's travelling all the way from Australia, Tony Hunter, I think, to come and talk. Um, could you, I know it's difficult, maybe pick out some personal highlights to kind of look ahead? Yeah, well, uh, the content's hung around some of the really big picture questions facing the food industry at the moment. So um, for me, the panel looking at future proteins will be really interesting. Um, and it's interesting on a number of levels because partly it'll be looking at formulations for things like plant-based. It'll be looking at very futuristic um, technical innovations around cultured meat and all the biotechnology innovation that's going on there. Um, but then it's also going to be looking at animal agriculture and the role that that can play in a sustainable future. So bringing things in like uh, regenerative practices, which are actually really exciting to think that you can, you know, play a role in reversing climate change and actually sequestering carbon back into the soil and delivering healthy soils. It's, it's an interesting concept. and I think it's important to unpick as well. Absolutely. Um, so that's the content, um, but a show is nothing without its exhibitors and suppliers. Um, who, who are you personally looking forward to seeing? I know there's going to be numerous kind of uh, launches, a lot of new products um, on show. Is there anyone you can you can pick out? I know there's there's, there's quite a lot. It's quite a difficult question, I guess, but. Any, any, any real highlights for you? Yeah, I mean, there are, there are going to be some big ingredients companies there, and it's always important to see what's going on with them. So people like uh, Friesland Campina Ingredients, um, who uh, focus on dairy-based ingredients, obviously, um, and they're, they're really um, sort of position, positioned at this intersection between uh, what would be considered traditional food ingredients and nutrition ingredients. Um, so that's a, a really important consumer driver, and it's interesting to see what innovations they'll be offering. Um, you've got uh, Ulrich and Short, who um, are focused on clean label reformulation solutions, and, and obviously that is a massively important driver right now. And it's about more than just taking out the baddies like fat and sugar. It's it's also about bringing positive nutrition. So they're they're quite experienced in adding. Um, fibres or proteins to formulations. Um, you've got people like Univar who, um, who are a distributor that work with a lot of the big ingredients companies but then they also work with some really interesting niche companies that perhaps you wouldn't be familiar with. So people like Seaweed & Co that are really bringing new ingredients into the market. Um, so, so it's always interesting to hear from them. And then we have um, some ingredients companies really focused on on-trend categories. So things like plant-based or indeed you mentioned um, CBD earlier. So we've got Mile High Labs who will be joining us. And it's, it's very much about seeing the innovation in that space that can sort of drive the future of food, I suppose. Fantastic. And I know you're going to be um, moderating or, or um, uh, a few panels, uh, panel discussions. Um, I, I want you to give me the elevator pitch now. There's, if someone's going to take time out of their day to come to the NEC to the ingredients show, um, what's what are the key reasons they should they should come to this show? I would say content. Um, the content platform is really strong, and there'll be some really interesting things there. But more than that, it's about meeting the exhibitors and speaking to um, speaking to them to understand their expertise and see how they can help drive innovation across your portfolio. As the buzz around hemp extract grows and we see more and more products entering the market, how can brands create products that feed an endocannabinoid system? Not sure what that means? Well, I caught up with the main man himself, Professor Jay Noller, who's the director of the Hemp Global Innovation Centre. I started by asking him what his role entails day to day. Well, we are fortunately in a place uh, called Oregon over in the northwest part of the United States where 
we have uh, had a long, long history in uh, hemp uh, studies, research and such. The uh, Research Center for the United States uh, from about 1880 until the mid-1930s was uh, located at uh, my university at that time. Was uh, mainly federal, uh, that is, national scientists looking at hemp. So it's part of our long history uh, to be looking at this plant. We have, of course, uh, been able to enlarge our relationship to the world. Uh, we have uh, ongoing research for our faculty students, um, uh, basically about eight hours apart around the world at 45 degrees. And then we have uh, defined relationships with other countries. Uh, and so we are truly, uh, at this point, uh, the most uh, globally ex extensive uh, research center on hemp in the world. And are you, Jay, even surprised at just how um, how much CBD and hemp extracts has, has taken off, um, particularly here in the UK, but, but around the world? What, what do you put that down to, just the, the increased interest and, and, and demand for, uh, for these products? Well, it got out of jail. Uh, that is, uh, internationally, we see the uh, opening uh, by governments for the production, processing, and uh, with some limited uh, success, uh, the distribution of uh, cannabis-based products. When I say cannabis, uh, throughout this talk, I'm talking about the species, um, and uh, there's a political division between uh, the higher THC cannabis, uh, also known as marijuana, and then that which is uh, arbitrarily set at 0.3% uh, or low of the Delta 9-THC, and that's known internationally as hemp. So that's just a political division. So we see the political opening is uh, what has uh, truly made this a overnight sort of success. That is, um, it's a necessary uh, plant uh, in our lives and society, and finally we're able to do it legally to some degree yeah i think it's certainly been labeled by some as one of the most important ingredients of, of the decade um is that something you 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 feel passionately about and, and agree with uh there are things i feel passionate about uh but you know as a scientist i rationally understand uh, why this uh plant and its various uh compounds that it produces, metabolites is a fancy word we use, that um, has, uh, was it largely used uh, throughout uh, the world. Uh, it was used in the UK, the US, uh, anywhere else in the world uh, as a necessary uh, aid, uh, medicinal, as a necessary human health element. Unfortunately, it became uh, a political pariah and uh, so what we're seeing now is uh, some rational uh, stepping back into what has been used uh, for many, many centuries, not millennia. Well, we're all absolutely delighted and, and very much looking forward to you making the trip over to the Ingredients Show, which is um, coming up soon in, in March. Um, I know everyone is intrigued by the, the, the body of research 
And I think in particular, the fascinating title of your session, which is um, about finding your inner maestro. Very intriguing. What can you tell us about what finding your inner maestro is all about? Well, what it means is that, uh, you know, if you look at your, uh, any one of us, your daily uh, body temperature, um, and, um, you know, it's uh, in the upper 97 something uh, is now the new uh, known average uh, temperature in Fahrenheit, about 37 Celsius. Um, that your homeostasis, how your body regulates itself, keeps an even keel, is uh, driven by your endocannabinoid system. And so this is a part of human biology. And we have a, our body produces um, the same or very closely analogous compounds as to those that are found in the genus uh, cannabis. So the your inner maestro is what keeps you even keeled, uh, keep you your body running, and so it's um, a necessary part of our of the human organism to have when it's stressed, when it uh, needs a refreshing because the body isn't able to fully uh, produce enough of the endocannabinoids to have the external cannabinoids brought to it vis-a-vis through various uh, delivery mechanisms, of course. Um, And so when we look at food ingredients, uh, food is another part of uh, how we feed ourselves to keep our energy up and alive. So I guess this this is why there's um, such interest from, from food manufacturers' perspective. Uh, around introducing CBD and hemp extracts into into food products, um, what are what are the key reasons you think that brands need to need to be looking at this more closely? Well, the uh, truth in packaging that we will see in various uh, parts of the world, where you see the label on the um, food, or even uh, on the shelf above, where you pick up the uh, fruits and vegetables. I will tell you something about the composition, carbohydrates, protein, um, and various other uh, key elements. Uh, You'll see the vitamin C will be there for your citrus fruits and such. Um, Milk, coming from cows, we'll talk about vitamin D that they add uh, or that's uh, present. And so uh, these key components uh, are all necessary because we want to have healthy, flourishing citizens and you know, friends, neighbors, loved ones. So it makes sense then that uh, you need to look at on that list is what's feeding your endocannabinoid system beyond just, say, uh, replace, replacing cellular material, which is most of what's going on, and then the energy to, for their cells mm-hmm. to do their work. And you mentioned um, the Clairsum team. I know they will be um, at the show as well, uh, which is which is uh, important in terms of them being around to offer important help and advice. I'm sure many questions will will come out of um, of the talk that you're doing in particular, and I'm sure they'll be fielding lots of inquiries and, and potential questions. 
you mentioned about the fact that CBD and cannabis has um, sort of got out of jail recently. Do you think there are still continued sort of misconceptions and barriers around legality, reliability, and you know, sourcing quality, as you mentioned? If we take our, our case um, in uh, the United States, uh, particularly in Oregon, uh, we could see that this was important. Uh, showing up uh, early on as uh, medical marijuana or medical cannabis, uh, medicinal cannabis. You'll see these different names. And uh, to large part, uh, this is being driven by um, anecdotal, uh, ad hoc, or to some degree, uh, research, but not research within the domain that would be fully understood and, and say, even recorded uh, and blessed if you will, with air quotes over blessed, uh, by a national government or international body, uh, i.e. The, the markets uh, have gone out ahead of the science. And so uh, when we look at the misconceptions are that uh, we've all have been well uh, trained by governments uh, globally uh, that this uh, genus is really counter uh, what uh, governments want. Um, and so now we see governments are coming back around saying, no, this was at least, um, except for one molecule, uh, that's the Delta-9 uh, tetrahydrocannabinol, yeah. um, that uh, the others um, have had uh, studies, uh, but, but they are still subject to government uh, reviews, and each government will have its own sort of view on, on things. So I think we still have uh, a way to go, um, and that is um, what do you do with the society, how society even looks at ex-convicts. Uh, so something that's been in jail and now it's out, um, that's always going to be a barrier, just a social barrier. Um, and so uh, it's going to be through uh, concerted, uh, multinational, multi-institutional studies, uh, which is really back to where we are with our center. And that is, uh, there's more than just um, the uh, human um, elementary uh, uses, the topic inhalation, uh, all the various delivery to get uh, within the human body, interact with the endocannabinoid system. It's also a plant that has far more uses than any other plant. Um, and so it's what we will see are uh, in terms of uh, barriers are always going to be on the perceived uh, drug use or, or uh, potential addiction uh, issues. And of course, one can get addicted to sugar, yet sugar's out, and of course, alcohol. We could point to all sorts of other systems where uh, through uh, government regulatory practice uh, and, of course, social use uh, that things can be fairly well normalized. Now, Neil, I know for our next speaker, you have been doing a little bit of gazing into a crystal ball. Is that right? 
That's right. And what better man to speak to than Tony Hunter, who's a food futurist. He's looking 10, 20 years ahead in terms of what we all need to be thinking about and taking notice of. He joined me all the way from Brisbane. And I started by asking him what he hoped to get out of the show. I think twofold, Neil. One is, you know, I really think that the message around, you know, feeding the planet, sustainability, how we're going to use technology to go forward is a really, really important message. We're at a stage now where we've pretty well reached the planetary limits for humanity. In other words, the resources we use up, particularly land and water, are just about at their limit. At the moment, we use 50% of our arable land for agriculture, 70% of that for livestock. And they're saying by 2050, we want world food demand to be 50% more than, than, we'd, than we have now. And using our current system, that's simply not going to happen. So we need to do more with what we've got. We really just can't keep eating the way we do now. Um, as a global population, the way that we do in the UK or the Australia or the US, um, it just it just simply can't happen. That's you know, unless, of course, we use new technologies and we do something different. People in general look out two to three years. We all think we know what's going to happen in two to three years. We think we have a pretty good idea in five years. But how often has anyone sat down and said, "Where will my industry be in ten years?" or 20 years, or 30 years, and really opened up their thinking, opened up their mind to say, what are the possible futures? Now, I can't tell you the future. Anyone who says they can is either a fool or a liar, but I can give you some possibilities out there driven by all of these new cutting-edge technologies, which will, in some way, shape, or form, fundamentally change the food industry. So that's why I invite people to come along and listen to not only myself, but other people there to look at the long-term future of the industry because it's coming sooner than we think. So what are some of those um, those critical um, technologies that you think will be shaping the future of food? The growing need for protein, more sustainably and efficiently produced protein is going to be really, really important. And if you have a look at what's going on at the moment, I mean, one of the most interesting ones is, of course, the cultivated meat, cell-based meat, where we basically grow meat in large fermenters. We take the cells, we add the nutrients, we put them in large fermentation tanks, and we basically grow meat. And that seems to be a much, much more efficient way of producing um, animal protein than, than the current conventional agriculture. Now, there's, there's some discussion about, is it more greenhouse gas efficient? Um, is it more energy efficient? Well, the jury's a bit out on that because no one's got anything that we can actually model. They will very, very soon. There's a couple of companies who are building pilot plants at the moment, so hopefully we'll have the answer to that question probably in 2020, if not at the latest, early 2021. But I think it's undeniable that as far as land use goes and water use goes, it is much more efficient. And those are really two of our big limiting factors, as we just talked about before, as to how we can help feed the planet. So I think that's one um, really, really important technology that's that's going to change the future of food. What is a food futurist? 
is I help companies understand how all these new cutting edge technologies are going to affect them. And not just in the usual, you know, couple of years, three years, maybe, you know, five years, but what's the industry going to look like in 10 years, 20 years, 30 years with all these cutting edge technologies that are coming in? So to do that, I spend basically two to three hours every day just keeping up with the latest that goes on. And if I'm at a circulation of more than a day or two, um, I may as well know nothing because things are just changing so rapidly in food these days compared to what they used to. I mean, I've been in the industry for 30 plus years and I've never seen a more exciting time or a faster rate of change. But what do you think are some of the most exciting alternative pro proteins um, that you've seen recently? I know you mentioned Beyond and Impossible Burger, etc. Is, is there anything else that you think is, is a real game changer in the market? For a futurist, that's, that's behind me. I'm looking way ahead of that one now. And the ones that really excite me, there's a company called Solar Foods who say they're creating food from air. And what they're actually doing is they are taking solar energy and using that to break down water into its constituent hydrogen and oxygen. They add some carbon dioxide, a few other nutrients. They use some of that um, hydrogen to make ammonia. And they grow protein, basically from solar energy and some water. And it's about a thousand times more water efficient and well over a hundred times more land efficient than something like soy. And the beauty of this is you don't need arable land because that's what we're short of. You can take areas where there's no arable land, put one of these factories there, as long as you can get a source of fresh water, or maybe in the future we'll get desalination down to a, a um a cheap enough alternative, but you can then grow that anywhere. So I think that's a really great product. And they've teamed up with another company, another Finnish company, and they're going to be commercialising that in the next 12 to 18 months. So I think that's a really interesting one to watch out for. And with that, I, I'm assuming that um, we will be living longer, healthier, happier lives. Is that the... Uh... Know, the vision that we, we have for, uh, for, for ourselves with uh, improved uh, choice of food? If we look at how we live in the West and how we viewed food in the last century or so, we basically looked at food as fuel. I eat so that I can survive, so that I can go to work or I can play or I can do whatever, and that's why I eat. And that any real health advantages of food really just got lost. And that sort of, you know, begs the question is if, if people are eating food for their health, what industry are food companies in? I say they're in the health industry. They're not in the food industry at all. The food industry and the health industry, in, in my mind, are rapidly converging. We're certainly seeing at the moment the effects of poor nutrition, type 2 diabetes, obesity, uh, coronary problems, you know, all sorts of issues going on as a result of our diet, which is affecting our health. So we've had a separation of the food industry from the health industry. But really, 
I certainly see the two in the decades to come on a converging path. This time around, our thought for the week comes from Dr. Megan Rossi, uh, who's actually going to be speaking at the show. She's known as the Gut Health Doctor, and she's going to be telling us a little bit about how uh, health and happiness often can come from the inside out via the gut. Incidentally, we have five copies of Megan's new book, Eat Yourself Healthy, to give away. Megan's very kindly signed them for us. So the first five people to email me on Nick, N-I-C-K, at jellybeancreative.co.uk will receive an exclusive signed copy at the show. So here's Megan with our thought for the week. How healthy is your gut? Now, gut health is really revolutionising essentially what it means to be human, with the latest research uncovering just how much these trillions of bacteria that live in each and every one of our digestive tracts actually does for us. In fact, we probably couldn't survive without these bacteria. Indeed, emerging evidence suggests that people who have more different types of plant-based foods in their diet actually have better gut health. In fact, the researchers suggested we should all be aiming for at least 30 different types of plant-based foods per week. Now, each of these should actually come from your six different plant-based food groups. Things like your whole grains, your nuts, your seeds, your legumes, your fruits and your veggies. So, how many are you getting in each week? Well, that's about it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening and thanks very much to all of our guests. If you haven't already done so, please go and get yourself registered at www.theingredientshow.co.uk. We'll see you very soon. Take care.